Welcome to PivotCast. This episode was recorded on October 11, 2018 at the Transat Club. In this episode, we have readings from Jamie Tennant, Jamila Ibram, and Paul Vamish. This episode has some strong language and mature themes, so listener discretion is advised. Jamie Tennant is a longtime freelance journalist, broadcaster, and writer. He is currently the program director at 93.3 CFMUFM and the host of the literature program Get Lit. He was a National Magazine Award nominee, Hamilton Literary Awards finalist, and was awarded the Hamilton Arts Award for writing in 2018. The Captain of Canoe Hill is his debut novel, and you can find more about him on his website, jamietennant.ca. Please welcome Jamie. Thank you very much, Michelle. Thanks for having me out here. This is awesome. I don't get to do a lot of Toronto readings, so that's exciting. Um, I'm going to start off reading from uh, The Captain of Canoe Hill, which is my uh, debut novel, which came out with Palimpsest Press, our joint publisher there. She's awesome out there. Um, so basically, the story is about a guy named Dennis, who is a rotten human being. And he works in the music business in Chicago. And through a strange series of events, maybe or maybe not related to some kind of magic, he ends up far, far from home in Scotland on a hillside. And his task is to look for some vandals who have been vandalizing this place, on a tower on Canoole Hill. This is the weird little job he ends up finding, desperate for cash. What actually happens is he finds out who's been doing this vandalism, and it's not a child at all, it's not a teenager, it's a thousand-year-old goblin named Eddie. And it's kind of a spoiler, but not really. It does say this on the back of the book. So, um, But if you didn't read the back of the book, I'm sorry, I just wrecked it a little bit. Anyway, so this, uh, this scene happens right after he first... Uh, chases down the culprits in the tower and flashes his flashlight and expects to see like a no good Nick teenager and instead sees this horrific horror show in front of him and kind of panics a little bit. So I know the difference between dream real and real real. That was f***ing real real. He could tell by the way the traffic sounds washed over him like distant waves and the way the wind blew across his face. He could tell by the dead rabbit, stomach split open like a haggis on Robbie Burns' day. Blood oozed from the fatal wound this time, as if he had interrupted the boy, the man, the thing, before it could drain the carcass dry. This was not a dream. A few inches from the rabbit lay what appeared to be a sharp stone or crude arrowhead. Dennis sank down on his haunches, breath quicker than even the rabbits had once been, head swimming, his heart threatening to jostle his ribs out of alignment. It was no stone, natural or shaped by man. It was a tooth, grayish, as if carved from old bone, razor sharp, appearing sickly, yet strong. Dennis reached out and picked it up by the tip to examine it in the flashlight beam. The tooth had the density of lead. It wasn't an incisor, a canine, or even bloody human, so far as he could tell. All he knew was that it came from the mouth of the long-haired little man. He had been no taller than Dennis's lowest rib, maybe shorter, the size of a very young boy, seven or eight or older at the oldest. But his teeth had been long, vampiric, crookedly gathered like a fistful of bent nails crammed into his mouth. The tooth was whole, its roots attached, as if it had just dropped from the man's mouth as he disappeared into thin air. Yet disappeared into thin air? Jesus, what about that little detail? He had disappeared into thin air. That wasn't possible. 
but neither was that face. It was no child in a latex Halloween mask. The crooked spikes that filled its maw had been attached to blood-red gums, which had been connected to a mouth, connected to lips, connected to the rest of its leathery face. Even in the dark, Dennis could see it was no mask, and if it was, it was part of a six-hour Hollywood makeup job. You daft b- Oh, get rid of my bad Scottish accent comes in now. I'm sorry. Forgot to warn you. Startled, Dennis fell forward, the tooth in one hand and the flashlight in the other. Without hands to brace himself, he slipped on the slick rabbit blood and struck the wall. Stone nodded his forehead, and he cried out. The little man in the red cap stepped forward and filled the doorway, inasmuch as his miniature frame would allow him to fill it. Dennis raised the flashlight beam to the man's face. The man squinted and raised his hands. Ugh, have you not done enough already? Dennis tried to swallow, but his throat was... His throat merely convulsed. Turn off the bloody flashlight then. It hurts my eyes. I've already got a hole in my mouth, so could you at least do me the favor and not blind me as well? Dennis clicked off the flashlight without thinking, and when the weak urine-colored beam was gone, darkness swelled inward. Dennis tried to swallow again. Ugh, don't you worry. I'm not going to hurt you, the little old man said. As if to prove it, he stepped backwards with a hint of bounce and bowed slightly. When he motioned politely for Dennis to come forward, Dennis hesitated. Come out the tower, you idiot. I'm trying to prove I didn't mean you any harm. And I didn't, I promise. But you've got to do me a favor. Dennis blinked in the dark. Favor? Aye, favor. You're familiar with the concept, yeah? Something you do for another person's benefit, out of the kindness of your heart? A sarcastic Scottish vampire midget, thought Dennis. New York to Glasgow and f***ing deed. What's the favor? Could you watch your mouth? What? I'm asking you not to swear again. Uh, swear? Swear, cursed, use the big fella's name in vain. It worked, you got rid of me. That's the, there was a day when I'd have come back to rip out your guts. It hurt like a right bastard to lose a tooth that way, you know. But I am no longer harm humans. You must believe me. I've only come back to ask you not to do it again. Dennis watched the man's mouth as he talked. Were he to yawn those teeth, he would look like an anglerfish. Do what again? What's your tooth got to do with it? Dennis squinted at the man, but he could only make out an outline against the moon. He was tiny but stocky in a way that children are not. Thick-set, stump-chested with short legs. Dennis watched and waited as his eyes adjusted to the dark. Soon he could see the man's face, craggy and ashen in the moonlight like dead flesh, or at least the dead flesh in a George A. Romero film, zombie-shaded and loose. Gray hair hung limp and ragged from beneath its cap, like a well-worn, misshapen beret. In the moonlight, a patch of the cap glistened with something horrid and viscous. What's your tooth got to do with it? Losing it that way? What way? Dennis insisted. He was certain the freak would lose patience with him, leap at him, and sink his deep-sea predator's teeth into his neck. What did I say? You said the name of, you know, not the father of the son, J.C. I'll not say it myself. You swore to lad. Did you not do it on purpose? Dennis shook his head in the dark. The man cocked his head to one side, like a curious animal, and regarded him. You're not from Scotland, are you, lad? More of a statement than a question. No. And, uh, you have no idea what the bloody hell I am. Have you? Another shake. Well, I'll be buggered. He slapped one palm against a thigh. Dennis noticed his hands were small and crooked, with talon-like fingernails at least three inches long. What the hell is with this guy? I don't believe in f***ing midget f***. 
Vampires. There was a pause, a second where the disbelief and shock intersected with Dennis's brusque internal monologue. The intersection was where Dennis could stand, for a moment at least, without running, screaming, or losing his mind. Well, Dennis said. Well, what? replied the man. Well, what in f*** are you then? There was a pause, followed by a chuckle that burbled into laughter. What in f*** am I? He laughed, coughed dryly, and laughed again. Oh, lad, where do I begin? Uh... Begin with saying why the words Jesus, ah, for heaven's sakes. Okay, Dennis held up his palms and stepped backward. All right, why did swearing make you disappear? Where the hell did you go? Why did you lose a tooth? One thing at a time, lad, the man replied. He now regarded Dennis with more curiosity, eyes darting up and down his frame, head still cocked. You're a yank, right? American, yeah. Ah, you've got next to no folklore then, have you? You'll all know about pixies and fairies, I suppose, but little else. And what you do know you got from movies, or books, Americans read, on occasion. Good, that makes it simpler. The man paused. I'm sort of a, a goblin. They call me a red cap. Dennis laughed, but part of his mind believed the old man, and he choked the laughter back down. You're a goblin. So, stealing babies, guarding bridges, standing on the wings of airplanes, that sort of thing? I've never stolen a baby or been in the Twilight Zone movie, but you've got the idea. Okay, so how does a supernatural being catch a pop culture reference? By watching movies. What do you think? What do you do? Sit in the back of a theater wearing a human costume? Oh, you're a witty one. You are, said the red cap with a curiously melancholy smile. You're saying you don't believe me then? Hmm. I suppose you've got no goblins in America. No, of course not. Not many left here either, the red cap sighed. No one really believes in us anymore. There's a few, despite the dubious advances of modern technology, there are still people who believe. Distantly, deniably, but they do. And that's, where there's, that's why there's still some of us around. That in sheer numbers, of course. Law of averages would state we'd still be around. Lord, you should have seen us a thousand years ago. Back in the day, one might say, everyone believed in us. Everyone feared us, and we were everywhere. Today, though, people think we didn't exist, hence we didn't exist. It was Dennis's turn to cock his head now. The red cap's voice had turned almost wistful, as if it was remembering the glory days of a pre previous millennium. So, you're dying off because no one believes anymore? Please, said the red cap. This is not a children's book. You gotta believe the power of imagination, singing songs to power Santa's sleigh or some such rubbish. It's more complicated than that, more essential. Ugh, you probably think I'm a drunken homeless dwarf or something. The creature turned, shaking his head, and made to walk away. You'll not understand. Try me. Dennis swallowed hard. Convince me. The red cap turned back and raised an eyebrow. I cannot convince you, lad. You either believe your eyes or you do not. I can only tell you what I know. So tell it. And then he proceeds to tell it, so... Um, just for laughs, because this seems like a room of happy, like-minded reading people who wouldn't mind this, I'm going to read you the short opening chapter to the novel in progress, which has no name, and I really have no idea, even on the end of my second draft that I'm on, I have no idea what I'm going to call it. But it's basically 
about a uh, screenwriter named River Black. That is not her real name. She writes horror movies. This is the name she has taken on. And, um, well, I'll see. This might actually be enough information. I'm not sure. Basically, um, I'm setting up the major strange mysteries of her life that she is going to eventually go and try and solve. She used to live in Japan. That's pretty much the only other thing you need to know. I'm holding a book that cannot exist. That's not a philosophical puzzle or an obscure Zen koan. This book should not, cannot exist. And yet, here it is, the impossible sound of one hand clapping in my lap. The book is called Gaijin no Kappa. It means the foreigner's kappa in Japanese. Translated literally, kappa means river child, but that's not a helpful interpretation. The kappa, as you may know but likely don't, is a creature from Japanese folklore. It's a supernatural being, probably used by parents as a scare tactic. They describe the sordid creature to their children, maybe by candlelight for extra fear factor. It's putrid, fishy aroma, it's nasty fondness for kid meat, in the hopes that their children would stay away from the river. By today's standards, that's crappy near-pathological parenting right there. But then again, you don't play by the river if you're scared of the river monster. If you don't play by the river, you don't drown in the river. Crappy parenting, but it appeals to my sense of the macabre. God, if I had kids, they would be so f***ed up. The Kappa underwent an image makeover at some point in Japan's post-war history. They fed the legendary river imp to the nation's kawaii machine. The kawaii machine is what I call the pop-cultural process of cutification. Japan loves to cutify things. I imagine the kawaii machine as a giant Dr. Seuss meets Rube Goldberg beast, all pulleys and levers and bellows, powered by the giggles of Japanese girls in frilly pink dresses. You insert normal things on one end, there's a flurry of animated activity, and kawaii out the other end comes a cuter, cartoonish version of the same thing. Insert a boy, a kitten, a skirt, a cucumber, a kappa, it comes out cute. Cute has a lot of currency in modern Japan. Kappa don't eat children anymore because they've become Sanrio toys, mawkish anime sidekicks, and mascots for sushi restaurant chains. They were reduced from Godzilla to Godzuki. Nothing about today's Kappa would keep you away from the riverbank. But, okay, this impossible book. There's an illustration of a Kappa on the cover, just as a pencil sketch. The creature stands as if looking at you, looking past you, over your right shoulder. Its back is hunched, its beak raised, yet its eyes are soft as if it were smiling. A creature caught between its past and its future, in between its cruel history and its comic present. The rest of the cover is plain white, except for two lines of text. At the top is the title, written in a fattened, rounded font, bright orange. The letters look sewn together like felt stuffed with cotton batten. It suggests a story for children. And at the bottom, in a simpler font, it says, By River Black. But okay, here's the thing. My name is Helen Olinda Delaney, but I am River Black. I'm River Black, but I never let anyone read this manuscript. I didn't send it to a publishing house, work on it with an editor, or show it to my sister, and I've made my sister read some dreadful dreck. I mean, shit so bad the very documents emit an off-putting fecal bouquet. I don't possess a copy of this manuscript. I never even printed it. Yet here it is, in my hands, solid as solid, as real as the cup that holds my coffee or the chair that supports my widening 40-something ass. It showed up three days ago, the book, not my widening ass, in a plain brown padded envelope. It has lain on my kitchen counter, untouched, 
for three days. Oh, and not only did I not publish this book, I technically didn't write it either. I just edited it. I transcribed it, then edited it, embellished it, gave it a bit of color. If it were a comic book, it would say inked by River Black. The story, however, belongs to Daniel. It should say by Daniel Trueblood. Daniel, who I got to know in a tiny closet of a kitchen at the back of a hostess bar in the mountains of Japan. This story was for me, for us. He would be mortified to know that it was published. That's what I think anyway. No one knows how Daniel would feel about anything because 20 years ago, Daniel disappeared, vanished into thin air, and no one has seen him since. Okay. Thank you very, very much. I appreciate it. Um, I actually think that Scottish accent was pretty good. Thanks. I'm impressed. Our next reader, Jamila Ibrahim's debut short story collection, Things Are Good Now, uh, was one of Now Magazine's 10 books to be excited about in 2018 and has made several CBC lists of books writers to watch for 2018. Things Are Good Now has been reviewed favorably, very favorably, I might add, in many publications, including the Toronto Star, Literary Review of Canada, Quill Inquire, This Magazine, The Globe and Mail, and Toronto Life. Jamila's stories have been shortlisted for the University of Toronto's Penguin Random House Canada Student Award for Fiction and Briar Patch Magazine's Creative Writing Contest. So thrilled to have you here. Please welcome Jamila. Thanks, Michelle. I'm really happy to be here. Um, I'm going to read uh, a story from uh, my collection. Um, it's called uh, You Made Me Do This, and it's about um, a mother who loses uh, her son to street violence and um, the trauma that follows that loss. You Made Me Do This. Mariam tightened her hijab and tucked its end under her chin for the hundredth time that day. Every time a woman uh, pressed herself against Mar Mariam's shoulders to express her condolences, the flimsy polyester fabric came undone, sliding off her thin gray streaked hair. But Mariam was too tired to go upstairs to her bedroom to get a, be a better scarf or, or to ask someone for a pin to secure the one she was wearing. Her friend Asma, whose loud weeping had just started to subside into snuffles, dried her eyes with her own shawl and asked, do the police have any leads? That's another thing Mariam was tired of already. People asking if the police went, uh, were any closer to finding the man who'd killed her son, Ismail, two days earlier. She shook her head, shifted around on the couch she, she shared with Asma, then discreetly slid her body to the end of the seat. Asma adjusted the pillows behind Mariam's back to ease the sadika she knew her friend suffered from. I'm fine, Mariam said, trying to keep her tone from betraying her annoyance. She didn't want to be waited upon. She was not a bride or a new mother to be pampered. If anything, she wished to be left alone. She looked at her watch. Three hours before her daughter's flight from Vancouver would land at the Ottawa International Airport. Without Mona, she felt under siege in her own home. After their, their initial loud keening, those of her friends who knew Ismail well huddled around her, bowed down with grief. The ones who had teenage sons around Ismail's age struggled with their growing fear of a city that seemed to be more and more determined every day to devour their children like an angry, voracious sea. 
Others that sat still, lost in their own past, slowly peeling scabs off old paints, reviving with silent tears and occasional sighs the, the memories of those who they'd, let, they'd long led to rest. Mariam had been in these women's shoes many times before. She had sat with them in, in their times of mourning. She had shared their tears, consoled them with the appropriate words, recited the right surahs to remind them of the impenetrability of God's plans and of the special place in heaven reserved for the faithful. That's what friends do for, for each other and what a community does for its members. But she never believed such a calamity would strike her home, not really. And losing one's child, she realized now, was not only about loss and separation, but also about defeat, a crushing sense of failure that no words or tears could ever absolve. She heard the clatter of dishes as three or four of her friends cleared the dining table where the foods that visitors had brought had been set up for lunch. A few kids crisscrossed her field of vision as they ran up and down the stairs. When someone opened the door to the basement, the voices of the men gathered there around her husband, Ahmed, rose to the main floor and commingled with those of the women and children. Mariam saw and heard these things peripherally, like being aware of the muddled noise while making her way through a busy market. In a way, that was what she'd been doing since she'd learned about her son's death, wading through the jumbled memories of her life, sifting for clues, for reason why Allah had rescued her from certain death 18 years earlier, brought her to this cold country and gave her a son just to take him away so quickly. When the police officers came to her door two days earlier, Mariam had expected them to say they were looking for her son for questioning. It seemed as though the police were always trailing young men like Ismail in this neighborhood or even to arrest him the way they had a few months earlier when he was um, detained for a week in relation to a murder that took place a few blocks away. This time, she was ready to stand up for her son, to tell the officers to stop harassing the poor boy. But when they told her of his mild's death, she was stunned into silence. She looked directly into the clear eyes of the officer who'd said the word dead, expecting to find a rebuttal but there was nothing in, in them except maybe a slight fatigue. She'd felt unsteady on her feet. She'd struggled to breathe, to say something, then simp simply collapsed. When she came to, she was in her bed. A police officer was looking down at her. She heard women's cry somewhere close by. She closed her eyes and opened them again. Are you okay, ma'am? The police officer asked. She saw her husband's bloodshot eyes in the front uh, at the foot of the bed. She nodded and closed her own eyes again. As the fact of her son's death surged through her mind, it brought with it a new awareness. She knew why her son was killed. She recognized her hand in it. She remembered how agitated and reclusive Ismail had become after he was re released from jail, the accusation that burned bright in his eyes whenever he deigned to look at her. She'd felt too triumphant for having saved him from imprisonment to, imprisonment to consider the dangers she'd exposed him to. This realization now sat at the center of her heartbreak, like a big block of ice slowly melting into her bloodstream, eroding her body from the inside out. She wished she had not recovered consciousness at all, or that she had died that time 18 years earlier, 
seven months before Ismail's birth, when she said her shahada on that unforgiving barren land on the border between Eritrea and Sudan and had closed her eyes on the world. She wished to go back to that moment so she could close her eyes, but for good this time. But she knew death doesn't come so easily for those who seek it. Mariam felt a cold draft as a tall, thin man in a leather jacket closed the front door. For a second, her heart leaped across the room. She thought the man was Ismail. Assalamu alaikum, said Hamza, her husband's friend, as he took his shoes off at the door, his voice devoid of, the, of its usual gaiety. Alaikum salam, tafaddal, the woman in the kitchen replied with equally restrained voices. Mariam watched Hamza make his way past the women and children to the living room before she got up to greet him. I'm so sorry, Haftay. I was away for work. I just heard today, Hamza said, his right palm on his chest, his body bent slightly in reverence. Thank you, Hamza. I know, she said. Aye, this is so much, such a painful loss to all of us. He was such a good boy, so polite, respectful of his elders, just like a son to me and Fatma. I know, I know. Thank you, Hamza, she said. May Allah grant you patience and fortitude in this time of trial, my sister, Hamza's, Hamza said. Thank you, brother. The men are downstairs, she said, averting her eyes from him. This is another thing she was tired of, people describing her son to her as if he weren't the boy she gave birth to, the boy she'd nursed for two full years, the baby smell in the folds of his chubby little neck, and arms that, they, that she used to love so much. The way it made her feel the first time his little body wobbled on the snow, weighed down by the pink snowsuit and matching winter boots she'd bought him from Zellers. She didn't yet know that in Canada, pink was for girls. His boundless energy, his easy laughter, his hunger for stories. When he was a toddler, only her stories could keep him seated long enough to be fed. But by the time he was in preschool, he had his own stories to recount. Tales of good guys and bad guys, cops and robbers, sirens and chases, gunshots and surrenders, all picked up from other kids in the neighborhood. She didn't make much of this back then. Boys got excited over t toy trucks and firefighters too. Later on, she wondered if she should have paid close closer attention, if Ismail's interest in these kinds of stories presaged his future failings. But children grow up so fast. She didn't see any of it coming until one day when he turned 14, she noticed he had shot up like wild grass to tower over her and his father. And suddenly trying to talk or beat sense into him had become harder than trying to infuse life into a brick wall. To avoid engaging with those around her, Mariam started stared into the distance, past the rows of shoes filling the hallway from the front door to the kitchen like pebbles on a beach. She tried to recall the last time she saw Ismail opening the front door. She pictured him tilting his head slightly to the side so he wouldn't hit the door frame. She remembered how when he forgot to bend down and bumped his head, he'd inspect his carefully groomed short hair in the hallway mirror, looking for chips of peeled paint. She focused her attention on the peephole. From, from where she sat, it was only a dark spot on the door. She imagined the impatience on her son's face as he waited for someone to open the door because he'd forgotten or lost his keys, which happened often. 
She saw the smooth jawline and thin long neck, which if it wasn't for peach fuzz on the chin and the prominent Adam's apple, could have caused him to be mistaken for a girl. She wished now she hadn't insisted on seeing Ismail's face before the men who performed the qusul at the mosque had tied the cotton shroud over his body in preparation for the janazah prayer and burial. But she needed to see for herself that her miracle baby, the boy who'd survived, who'd survived the trudge from Asmara to Khartoum so early in her pregnancy, the one who, against all odds, had made it through the, her de dehydration and exhaustion, had met his demise in his prime and in this land of peace and plenty. Even now, it felt all dubious, as though someone else's image were superimposed over her son's beautiful brown skin. She clenched her teeth remembering the photo shown on the news, a boastful Facebook profile picture that made Ismail look more like a hardened criminal than a murder victim. Why didn't the news people ask her or Ahmed for an appropriate photo? She shook her head. She felt an urge to see where her son had drawn his last breath. She wanted to collect his blood from the sidewalk where he was found, wash the ground clean with a soft, wet washcloth, as if that pavement were Ismail's body. She didn't want strangers to trample on her son's remains, didn't want her son's blood to dry and settle in the cr into the cracks, to become a forgotten anonymous dust on the thoroughfare of the affluent and indifferent. She owed him at least that, she who had uh, push, pushed him to his death. I'm gonna stop here. Um. I, also, I also brought um, some poems to read. Uh, two of these poems are going to be published in um, uh, Prism International in their uh, winter um, edition. It's my first poems are going to be published, so I'm very excited. <laughs> in this version, it's, uh, um, it's three poems um, called Family Portrait, Three Imperfect Sonnets. Um, the titles have changed uh, in the uh, version that's going to be published, but I'm going to read it as is, because uh, they published two out of the three uh, poems. They're going to publish two out of the three, uh, but as a trio, I think it works better with these titles. <laughs> okay, Family Portrait, Three Imperfect Sonnets. The, house, the Housewife. I come home to find my mother alone at the end of the silent corridor in the kitchen, carving goat flesh of bone. I fancy the cold focus of horror flick villains in her hands. Come, Sit and learn, she used to say. Ginger, then turmeric. Now all silence. I grab a knife and turn to face her stooped backbone. The nomadic blood that once told me aches for departures even when it's singing of arrivals. I think of bloodletting and the ruptures of keening hearts, the rites of revivals, and how to ease my mother's rigid limbs back into the warm vigor of her, oh, the warm vigor of her hidden wings. The Carpenter. He turns lumber into dressers and sheds to free his mind of old feuds and new aches. He spits on big words, saws sad tunes to, sh to shreds. A mayfly may flutter, but quickly breaks, he says, his smile like a fairy tale. Live, my daughter, he tells me, live now and well. 
Men preach or kill for rights, land, and gods. Give them power and they'll turn heaven to hell. I carry to bed his secrets and pains, dream of sawdust, bombs, and dead eyes, a diorama of blood-smeared great plains, the glimpse of war that has stained his eyes. We both wake up gasping for light and air, he shooing his ghosts away, I his despair. The Traveler. I see my eyes on the shimmering brine, dreaming up a road out the glass window, looking for paths on a map without signs, while sulking in memories of sorrow. I once triggered my mother's anger. Dead to her eyes, I found myself alone, bleeding through land and sea lines like watercolor. I crashed against walls of stone, lived on the border between flesh and its shadow. Now pressing mother's frail hand in mine, I read in her, in her pulse words of bliss I'd lost in the belly of a quicksand. My eyes, it says, always by yours on the brine, as you seek a path on your map without signs. Thank you. Paul Vermeers, I'm very excited to have here because Paul is like the kind of the dad of Pivot. Okay, Paul Vermeersh is a poet, professor, artist, and editor. He teaches in the creative writing and publishing program at Sheridan College and is senior editor of Woolsack and Wynn Publishers. <laughs> Sorry, line break. Where he runs the Buck Rider Books imprint. Self-Defense for the Brave and Happy, of which he has uh, many copies here. Uh, Self-Defense for the Brave and Happy is his sixth collection of poems. He lives in Toronto. Please welcome Paul. Thanks, Michelle. Uh, it's, it's great to be back at Pivot. Uh, very briefly, I'll tell you the story of uh, its history. Um, and I'm going to get some of it wrong, because it's been a long time. But back in uh, the spring of 1998, I started a, a reading series in a little cafe across the street from the Art Gallery of Ontario. It was called the Ivy Lounge. So we called it the Ivy Lounge Reading Series. And I ran that reading series for five years. And then uh, and we put out a little anthology with Insomniac Press called The Ivy Lounge Reader. And then um, Alex Boyd, the poet and novelist Alex Boyd, ran the reading series for five years. And then he was uh, about to hand over the reins of the series to the poet Carrie Tone. And it was right around then that The Ivy Lounge closed its doors. And so Carrie Tone took the series and she moved it to a place called the Press Club. And it's there that she renamed it because the Ivy Lounge is gone. So why, why keep calling it that? And she renamed the series Pivot because the word pivot has the letters IV in it. And that's, that's where that comes from. And Carrie ran it for a couple of years. And then uh, Elizabeth DeMariafi and Chico Murakami and Angela Hibbs all, all had their uh, turn uh, programming and hosting and running things. And then uh, Jacob MacArthur Mooney ran the series for several years and he moved it from the press club when it closed its doors to the Steady on Bloor Street and then the Steady on Bloor Street was gonna close its doors. <laughs> and now the series is run by Kinesia Lubrin and Michelle Brown Calistro right here at the Transact Club. And that brings me almost up to date. <laughs> almost up to date, because I do have a new book, but I just wanted to read uh, a little bit out of my last book uh, to sort of bridge 
time. Um, so uh, here's a little poem called Horse, which is um, an erasure poem. And I, I took uh, Stephen Crane's short story, The Boat, which is very tense, and you should read it. Uh, this is a much shorter version. It's, uh, it's like a little sonnet. So it's been highly erased. Horse. None of them watched the white horse racing from the sea like snow breaking from the spray, a glorious white wind in the surf. They sat and stared darkly at the earth. They wished to look toward the waves and see the white colt roar up the beach, but they looked without interest at the sand and remarked, I, will, I shall never see a living thing so thunderous and white. They turned their eyes from the waves and the immovable shore was green and safe. Losers. <laughs> and uh, there's a section in this book called On the Disintegration of, on, sorry, On the Reintegration of Disintegrated Texts, a manual for survivors. And this is just like some writing prompts. So just for those of you who like to write, I'm gonna throw out some of these and maybe, maybe these will help. Um, Starting with the person next to you, and then the next person, and so on, type out the names of every living person on Earth. <laughs> Call it roster. Uh, write the names of endangered species all over your body. Whenever a species goes extinct, surgically remove the corresponding body part. Call it dodo. That'll be exciting. Um, this is a good one. I mean, these are all good, but, <laughs> you know, they'll, they, they'll help you with your writing for sure. Um, I'll just do one more and then I'll, I'll give you a sample about how it works. Um, filter Robert Frost's The Road Not Taken through several random languages in free translation software and then back into English. Call it tea has been. Tea has been. Twice, leaving the yellow tree, I'm sorry, I cannot move. And to the passenger, long will I stay for a while, searching for where a band can keep weed after the concert. With the exception of some necessities, and it cannot be that this is grass and it's all used up, not that this isn't exactly the same thing, and the price is too. And in the morning also, and the leaves are, oh, I kept the first day once. When you know how to do it, I'll be back, no doubt about it. I say this with a sigh, forever after. Two roads diverged in the wood, and I, I have traveled a little. What's the difference? Uh, so that, that was from my last book, Don't Let It End Like This, Tell Them I Said Something. And uh, there's a few copies of this back there for anybody who wants one. I really need to get them out of my office, so. <laughs> make room for these ones. So this is my new book. It just came out last month, and um, it's called Self-Defense for the Brave and Happy. Uh, we need this uh, because uh, the world is uh, dark and scary, and in order to be brave and happy, you have to defend yourself. And uh, th these poems sh show you how. So um, as proof, I'll start with a poem about self-defense. Uh, 
I think I think we'll find it at the end of this section. All right, then. There it is. It's called Don't Wait for the Woodsman. Only stories want us to live. The wolf will lie in wait to devour us. Do not blame it for doing what wolves do. Henceforth, the wolf shall represent a mortal wound or the authorities, depending. Carry your car keys between your fingers like claws. Jingle them so the bear can hear you coming. Henceforth, the bear shall represent the yawning void or your mother protector, depending on how much you look like her. Hold your rucksack above your head so you look taller. Dress for the weather. The sun already wants to burn you. Do not provoke it. When venturing into strange territory, always carry a loud whistle and a bottle of wolf urine. Remember, this could be serial killer urine or cop urine, depending. It is good to have a healthy respect for nature. If a mother bear wants to defend her cubs, be one of her cubs. If you get sunstroke, report it. If you drown, report it. You did nothing wrong. Tell your own story. Let the wolves do their jobs. Unless the wolves are in disguise, drowning doesn't always look like drowning. Sometimes there is no struggle. If a wolf attacks you, don't wait for the woodsman. Keep your hands in the air or go for the eyes, depending. Protect yourself. Always keep your weapon locked in a safe place or carry it with you at all times, depending. It's hard to know how this story is supposed to end. If you see me approaching, do not run. You may not recognize me, but I am a bear. Do we look alike? If you are lost, stay where you are and I will find you. Now listen very carefully. Once upon a time, I was a story. Come with me if you want to get out of here alive. And uh, this is a poem called The Modernist Canon because um, I take the poems from the modernist canon and I, uh, I rearrange them. Uh, so uh, what you're about to hear are three famous poems um, and I have made uh, whole poem anagrams of each of these poems. So we'll start with the title of this poem which is The Modernist Canon and if you make an anagram of that you get the sanctioned norm. It's true. The sanctioned norm. Uh, and the three poems I've taken are uh, The Red Wheelbarrow by uh, William Carlos Williams, uh, In a Station at the Metro by Ezra Pound, and uh, Anecdote of the Jar by Wallace Stevens. So, one, herbal weed thrower no chosen dude pumps a treedling whiz rat we hit with sickened beaches. Two. A tooth is fermentation. A featheriest thin pop of a christened cow. A glob on buckwheat's pelt. Three. Acetone hate fjord. A spine ejects a... Let me start that over. A spine ejects adrenaline. Lithuania downloads porn. And well-versed yeti hunt lured harlots in the slums. Europhenol twisted sister prolongs adrenal rewind and would shower thunder upon a rotund jag, anoint a pratfall android. The bra was gray and ajar. My wookie tried heroin on TV. 
Bingo voids the fibroid turd like nothing else in Tennessee. Uh, there's a revolution coming. Uh, the imaginary world is already preparing for it, and we should too. This is the imaginary world is preparing for a revolution. We left suburbia for the moon, but forgot why. Forgot why we wanted to find and found pale dust. We promised to return, but we didn't, and we don't yet know the cost of abdicating our place there. Someday we will try to make the answers come, but they will not come. The imaginary world will not send us any more transmissions. We cannot know what this desertion will do to us. Our bodies try to summon an image. It glows like a gas station logo very clearly in the distance of a low exposure photograph, but it's too far away to replenish us now. Our sleep will wither like the flightless meal of the ortolan eater, that amateur of shame who hides his face beneath a napkin. A songbird swaddled in his lips like an unkept word. The imaginary world is preparing for a revolution. In our sleep, we will be blinded from seeing ourselves on other earths. And we won't know what it means when the moon appears, us above, when the moon appears above us each night, like the profile pic of an ex-lover or dead friend we will never see again. And we'll forget who she was, like amnesia. And all our similes will be like failed similes. And with all our exhaled breaths will go the animals we imagine. And with every blink will go the improbable shapes of spacecraft. And then the knack for punctuation, and then our silver eyes will turn brown and or blue. And we'll remain in suburbia forever and forget what it is like to be imaginary. And we'll live like tired apes in our tired flesh. And someday we will try again to make the image come, but it will not come, a glitch in the vision, a severed pixel that sparks in our limited eye, an eclipse in the form of pale dust we can no longer see, a word we didn't keep. Who are we to promise to return and not return? Um, some of the oldest poems in this book are nursery rhymes that uh, I wrote a long time ago, like in the 90s. And I found them again. And when I found them, uh, they had been redacted by someone. <laughs> Strange authorities creeping through my papers. And uh, I forget what I wrote in these spaces. So I'm just going to read a couple of these. And in the redacted parts, I'll just move my hand like this so you can tell where there's missing words in the nursery rhyme. So uh, this, I'll read two. Uh, this one's called, America Has Everything. America has everything, race cars and tractors. For presidents, they have peanut farmers and actors. Jimmy had to give up the world. Ronnie loved his jelly beans for all their lovely colors. Ronnie built a laser beam that cost a billion dollars. And, uh, and this one uh, is called Hush. <clears throat> Hush, little planet, nothing to fear. Papa's going to buy you an atmosphere. And if that atmosphere has costs, Papa's going to buy you a holocaust. And if... Has anybody here ever been wrong? <laughs> <clears throat> We're all 
finding new ways to be wrong these days. So this is on being wrong. <clears throat> it could be that you have the wrong hands or the wrong face. It's not your imagination. You do. You have. It is emerging as the condition of our age. Every day there are new ways of being wrong. Explosions are common, but that is not it. We are waking up to it. We are opening our wrong eyes. It is different for everyone, but how can we tell? Some people have two legs, but they should not have two legs. Some have pale hair where they should have inky feathers. It is a rift in space-time. It is divine malice. The most determined will seek easy remedies in their hacksaws and bottles of black dye. I have the wrong mass. The needle spins. It is unthinkable that I cannot rise into the air like a balloon. It is worse for others. The crowns of their heads are featureless. And even the caress of a loved one is a violation, a twinge of the omitted part, a rightful horn or set of antlers long withheld. Some are given the wrong names. Some called Paul are simply Leopold, misspelled. Many bear their wrongness unaware. We rise in the wrong rooms, dress in the wrong robes, but we are waking up to it. We are opening our wrong eyes. Our wrong hands jerk in the air, scrawling our true names into the registry of the deformed. It must be the condition of our age. There are more explosions, but they are only the side effect of not accepting the nature of our wrongness, of believing it must be the world that is deformed instead, unsure whether to abandon or destroy it. Some opt for both. But it is wrong to opt. No one opts for two blue eyes when the left should be silver. No one opts for the wrong tongue to form the sounds in their mouth. We are waking up to it. Only the wrong ones now can soothe the condition of our age. The boy who cannot fly was always wrong, and it cannot be undone. Just one short one, and then a little longer one, and then I'll end with a, a, a funny one, because the longer one is sad. So this is sort of a... I, I'm a new man, because I never wrote like inspirational poems before, but here's one. <laughs> so I'm finding new ways to break old habits. So this is called The Animals We Imagine, which was a line in an earlier poem that I read. So it's like, con back. The Animals We Imagine. It is not the animals in the wilderness that lure us to the wilderness, but the animals we imagine. Still, it is good to be prepared. First, do not try to be invisible. Invisibility is easy. The challenge is to be seen. It is the same for us as it is for them. If we discover that the yeti in the wilderness is only a bear, then we have discovered nothing. The yeti we imagine still evades us. Always look to the future. Do not be deterred. If you think you saw something, you did. If you think you know something, you do. You must become your imaginary self. Now imagine you are powerful. You are a giant fiery bear with a star for a heart. Imagine this is what you are and then become it. And uh, we read the, the modernist canon earlier. This poem is called The Modern Novel. It's about a modern novel. <laughs> uh. 
I, I stole the first line. So if you're gonna, if you like, if it sounds familiar, and you're like, hey, I'm, I, I admit it. The modern novel. This is the saddest story I have ever heard. It is sad because of the heart's condition, and because the mistress considers suicide. The narrator tells us so, but do not trust him. He is unreliable. Perhaps this is the most unreliable story I have ever heard. The narrator can't be trusted. Ignore him. And when someone makes this story into a film, do not believe it. The characters in the film are only reproductions of the ones from the book. This is the most reproduced story I have ever heard. Remember, only the people in the book are real. In the film, they are copies, homunculi designed to fool you and make you sad. And of course the film is sad because the characters forget all their lines. They forget what they wanted to say to the narrator, the one who tells them what they have forgotten. Do not believe him. He is either drunk or lying. Wait, I didn't mean that. I'm sorry. Please forget that I said that. And anyway, it wasn't true what I said about that being the saddest story I have ever heard. Sadder still is the story of the strangled fauna. Listen to the muttons or the beefs bleeding sadly in the outbuilding. Listen to the stranglers laughing, telling their own stories, strangling all the moo cows and little lambs. This is how the story goes. The narrator can arrange your eyes to rest where their eyes are can arrange your ears to rest where their ears are, can sit your body down into their bodies so you can feel the strangulations. Ladies and gentlemen, cover your ears if you don't want to hear it, if you don't want to hear yourselves in their place, in the place of the stranglers who've seen enough blood, or in the place of the veal calves whose eyes at 24 weeks are shiny buttons ringed with clear liquid drops. Their bleeding is part of what you are hearing now, but the narrator may be lying without even knowing it. What this really is, is the story of a secret sadness, a sadness in disguise, but the disguise falls off in front of everyone and they see how sad it is and they laugh at it, but it's nervous laughter because they are sad too and they tell their own stories to drown out the nakedness of this once secret sadness, just as they had done in the outbuilding where they strangled the wee piglets and the chick chicks. But you, hearing this, consider that this might never have happened that I am lying to you now to hide the truth about the little boy who believed them when they said they were going to leave him on the side of the road when he was four years old. I meant to tell you this before, but I couldn't. You see, when one sadness is placed on top of another, it becomes the head, and the first sadness becomes the body of a great desolation with seven conjoined limbs. This thing will whisper anything to you, and you won't know what to believe. I'm just going to finish with a poem, just as a palate cleanser, really, about flowers. Uh, the only problem is I'm, I'm bad at flowers. I don't really, I don't really know what they're called. <laughs> so this is uh, called Bad at Flowers. It's pretty straightforward. Just, I'll just dive in. I warned you I was bad at flowers. I only know a few, but then I began to name them. And I was struck by all the flowers that I knew. Roses, chowders, geraniums, areole, mason jars, Japan, mayonnaise, owls, orgasms, eyeballs, 
orgasms, deformities, mannequins, mice, sneakers, gladiolas, kiwis, seaweed, daisies, novels, gerbils, dimes, zigzags, Tesla, amaryllis, crap, leaves, allspice, albinos, onions, ovens, yo-yos, ragweed, kava, owls, pansies, deltoids, airbags, padlocks, orgasms, Star Wars, safety pins, honey, crap, nickels, napalm, tin cans, notebooks, horses, bed sores, hondas, owls, salmon, slivers, rifles, dorsal fins, front teeth, parrots, trucks, apes, orgasms, swimming pools, vinyl, peonies, jaundice, outboards, Satan, owls, lotteries, bicycles, lotuses, lilies, crap, Gertrude, lavender, schedules, parties, spiders, superpowers, shipyards, coffee, crayfish, crying, icicles, sasquatch, DJs, dugongs, violets, calendars, bullets, orgasms, clover, all these flowers. Thanks. For more information on Pivot, go to pivotreadings.ca.